0: This week, we are talking about a woman who will stop at nothing to get what she wants. A woman whose deceit allowed her to destroy the lives of her own family in her quest for money. A woman who went by many names over the years as she evaded police and crafted a complex web of lies to fool those around her. This is the story of Audrey Marie Hilly. Hey stranger, welcome back to another episode of Beers with Queers. I'm Jordy and I'm Brad and thank you so much for tuning in for another week. I know this is week three so if you're still sticking with us we greatly appreciate it and I hope you're enjoying it.
1: Yeah, I hope you're enjoying it.
0: So this episode's actually going to be coming out on January 2nd so Happy New Year. I hope you all had a safe and wonderful New Year's Eve and we are very excited to uh ring in 2023 with you so hopefully you guys have uh slept over slept off those hangovers if you have one and uh we're glad to bring you a little new year's surprise
1: not really new year's cheer more like new year's fear <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> that uh yeah that's a good way to put it um we're really excited uh what 23 23- 2023 holds and we have a lot of cases a lot of stories we want to tell you guys so we're excited to go on this journey with you so hopefully you stick around and uh, let's just jump right into it you know give you guys what you came here for so this week we are going to be talking about audrey marie hilly aka one of the worst mothers who ever lived and a woman whose life reads like the wikipedia summary for one of those cheesy thriller movies you find in the dollar bin at walmart And that's not a knock on the dollar bin at Walmart. I found some really good movies there. But this woman was pretty much a low-rent Amy Dunn from Gone Girl before that was even a thing. And she is a crazy, crazy woman. So let's get right into it. On January 13th, 1983, in Brattleboro, Vermont, a woman waited outside the front door of her friend's place of work. She was getting ready to drive her home to prepare for an upcoming snowstorm. While waiting outside, she noticed a black sedan parked just a few spots ahead of her. Inside were several men who seemed to be watching her and the front doors of the building. After a few minutes, Terry Martin comes walking out the doors of the building and towards her friend's car. Almost immediately, the men jumped out of the black sedan and rushed over to the car just as Terry was about to climb into the passenger seat. The men pulled Terry off to the side and began talking with her before one of them flashed a badge at her revealing that they were with the FBI. Terry approached the driver's side of the car and tells her friend, I've got a ride, see you later, before following the men back to their sedan and driving off with them. Now, after arriving at the police station, the detectives revealed to Terry that they had been trailing her for more than a week and were suspicious that she is not who she claims to be. Terry answered yes, and that she had actually ran away because of getting in some trouble with the police.
1: It's never a good thing to admit to the FBI.
0: I mean, well, you're about to learn that she, um, she kind of ran out of room to run. So we're about to go on a long journey of deceit. When asked why, she said it was overriding bad checks in Alabama. They then asked her what her real name was, to which she calmly responded, Audrey Marie Hilly. After police ran a quick background check on the name, they soon discovered that she's just not wanted for writing bad checks. She is wanted for murder. That's a big upgrade. So uh, let's jump back a little bit in time to see how exactly we got here. So Audrey Marie Frazier was born on June 4th, 1933 to Lucille and Huey Frazier. The family lived in Blue Mountain, Alabama, and Marie would be the couple's only child. Now Lucille actually had a stillborn born in 1931. Which was really hard on them and it's believed that may have actually made them afraid of trying to have another child so that was their only daughter and they made sure she was very well taken care of and she was spoiled rotten now both parents worked low-paying jobs at factories throughout most of marie's early childhood but even with their low earnings they made sure to always give or buy marie whatever she wanted neither parent were big disciplinarians either always making excuses for Marie or letting her walk all over them. This really became apparent after an incident when Marie was five. Her cousin Robbie had actually contracted the measles and was bedridden for several days. So, as a way to try and cheer her up and make her feel better, her mom actually bought her a cake just for her. Well, when Marie found out about it, she demanded her cousin give her half of it. And when her cousin refused, Marie went bonkers She threw herself on her cousin and bit her on the stomach so hard that it left teeth indentions that didn't go away for several months. And her parents just brushed it off as, eh, it's not a big deal, it's just kids being kids. Now, it was very clear the Frasers were living way above their means. Even beyond just buying Marie what she wanted, cousin Robbie reported several times going over to the Fraser house for dinner, where she was treated to lamb, ribs, high-end steaks, and a lot more. And you have to remember, this is 1939. This is right in the middle of the Great Depression. So uh, it's very strange to see two factory workers living the hind lifestyle. So it seemed the family had a taste for the extravagant things in life, which nothing wrong with. But it definitely, I think, helped hammer in Marie's own habits later in life because you'll see here in a minute that this woman loved to spend money. But now, to hear Marie tell it, She had the worst childhood you could possibly imagine. As she grew older, she often told anyone who'd listen how rough she had it as a kid, and how poor her family was, and how abusive her grandmother was towards her. Even though literally everyone in the family would later say that was complete bullshit, and they never saw anyone even so much as smack Marie on the hand.
1: Entitlement. Sometimes.
0: yeah it's that entitlement and it's that you know the feel sorry for me woe is me story i have it rougher than all of you type situations and she has a habit of doing that quite frequently and it just escalates the more older she gets these were just some of marie's lies that she had spent years collecting and weaving into her own truth to spend the story that she wanted people to hear and what i mean years is that Like any good lie, there's always sprinkles of truth in them. So, for example, Marie was raised by her grandmother for a good portion of her childhood while her parents worked, and Marie did say that it hurt to see them go, and often they would go weeks without coming back for her. And so, I mean, that sucks. You know, she did say she felt abandoned and all that stuff, which is understandable. But to hear her tell it, they were the worst people in the world, and they operated on her daily without anesthesia. But, like I said before, everyone in the family reported that... That is a complete lie. The biggest example, however, was how far Marie would go to rewrite her own history, was with a friend she made in high school named Rachel Knight. And Rachel was the quintessential popular girl. She was smart, had good grades, and she was captain of all the clubs in school. And Marie latched onto her like a leech. She started dressing like her, acting like her, styled her hair like her, to the point where everyone would always joke that they were twins. And Marie loved that idea so much that she would spend the rest of her life telling people how she had a twin sister and that how eventually that twin sister died in her arms.
1: Fake it until you make it, I guess.
0: (laughs) So uh, she's killed off several people already, theoretically. Now, it was in high school when Marie met Frank Healy and the two immediately became smitten. Frank would later say that he knew from the moment he saw her that she was the girl he was going to marry. They often went on double dates to the movies, and were often they would often take Frank's younger sister, Frida, along with them. And Frida loved Marie, always to, and always told her mom about her how her and Frank were lovebirds. After high school, Frank enrolled in the Navy and was quickly shipped off to Guam, but always made sure to return to Marie whenever he was on leave And on May 8th, 1951, the two officially got married. They settled down in Anniston, Alabama, after Frank left the Navy, where he would work in the shipping department of Standard Foundry, while Marie went to work as a secretary at the Alabama Gas Company. Eventually, they had two children, Mike in 1953 and Carol in 1960. Both were well paid, and they soon became known around town as one of the only couples who actually owned their home, not just rented. So, I mean, she's off to a really good start right now. She's got a husband. He is absolutely infatuated with her. They both have really good paying jobs. But that wasn't enough for Marie. The more uh, she got settled into the middle class lifestyle, as she put it, the more she wanted. And her taste just continued to grow and grow and grow. And Frank fell into the habit, like Marie's parents, that he could not tell her no. And so he bought her everything from a house... A brand new car every year when a newer model was released, and Marie would only wear dresses and jewelry from the most expensive and luxurious shops in town. She also insisted on all brand new furniture for the house and even hired an interior decorator to oversee it all, even though Frank kept trying to tell her that the house was only temporary until they could save up for a bigger house for them and the kids but she wasn't having any of it. And little, Frank would always joke with his friends how Marie could spend more money than he could make, but he still could never tell his wife no. And little did Frank know just how bad Marie's spending actually was. Because you see, Marie began taking out loans in Frank's name in order to keep up with her ever-growing hunger for expensive things. Visiting multiple loan offices and maxing them out, and when the bill would come, she would just ignore it and go to a different account. Pretty soon, Frank became the sole breadwinner in the house as Marie would often find herself jumping from job to job, always saying she got fired for the same reason each time. Either the other employees would gang up on her or they didn't like her and they would talk behind her back. Now, even though the Healy's looked like the All-American family on the outside, it was becoming harder and harder for them to keep up this appearance. And pretty soon, cracks began to show. Frank began to turn more and more towards alcohol and often drank with his fellow employees at a local club. Marie would often have to come pick him up because he was too drunk to drive, and she would often bring Mike or Carol along with her. Now, Mike recalls these events coming to a head on one particular night when, according to him, as him and his parents were walking out of the club, Frank threw up before laying down in front of the family car and telling Marie to get it over with and run him over. And Marie actually tried to do it. (laughs) She began to accelerate the car right as a friend of the family pulled Frank back onto the sidewalk. Relationships in the family were further strained when Carol began to act and rebel against her mother as she got into high school. Marie was not shy in making it known that Mike was her favorite child and often doted on him more than she would Carol. Part of this was also fueled by the fact that Carol was everything her mother wanted her not to be. She was a tomboy, she hated wearing dresses, and she never seemed to attract the boys like Marie used to do in her youth. And part of this we would later find out was because Carol was actually in fact a lesbian, but knew that her mother would not be accepting of it. Now eventually in 1972, Mike moved out of the house to go off to college, leaving leaving Carol alone to deal with their feuding parents. Now, Carol began to find refuge in a friend from church named Sonia Gibson, who'd often come over to the Healy House for dinner and to hang out with Carol. Unfortunately, around February 1974, Sonia became severely ill following a trip to the Healy House. She was unable to walk and began to develop a blue tint to her lips and her nails. Eventually, she had to be flown in a helicopter to a hospital better equipped to take care of her, but she died on the flight there. An autopsy would later find that she died from severe viral illness leading to inflammation of the heart. Sonia's mother was, of course, devastated and couldn't seem to understand how Sonia would decline in health so rapidly. Unfortunately, she would die before a proper answer was ever found. But the mystery surrounding Sonia's death would continue to haunt those who knew her. And so this is the first death, mysterious death, surrounding the Healy family.
1: And not the last, I'm sure.
0: Oh, you have no idea. Far from the last. By 1974, Mike married a girl he met in college named Terry Richardson, and the couple would often visit the Healy home along with Mike's in-laws. It was during one of these trips around Thanksgiving of 1974 that Frank asked Terry's father, Happy, if he wanted to go to a football game that weekend. The two never really spoken, or they weren't really personal before that, but according to Happy, it was very obvious something was bothering Frank. The two... Drove to the game when Frank finally opened up and admitted that he and Marie were having problems. Always fighting and arguing, and always having to step in when Marie and her mother would fight. Because it was at this point, so Marie's dad had died a few years earlier in the late 60s from a heart attack, and so Lucille moved in with Frank and Marie. And they were constantly fighting with each other over the smallest little issues, and they always made Frank act as a mediator. Happy noticed that Frank seemed to get nervous the more he talked about Marie. And Frank eventually admitted that he's worried for his wife and believes she should see a psychiatrist, but he was too afraid to even mention it to her. He shared similar fears with his son Mike a few months later and admitted to his son that he and Marie were in a rough spot, as he put it, and that things were not going well. It was in early 1975 that things seemed to outwardly be getting worse. A family friend appeared to A family friend happened to run into Frank in town one day and was immediately worried by his withered appearance. Frank went on to say how he had begun feeling ill the last few weeks and how he constantly had a headache that seemed to come and go like clockwork, and the doctors couldn't seem to figure out what was wrong. Mike began to worry about his father, too, after the two made made plans to meet up one Saturday afternoon, only for Marie to call and cancel him due to Frank suffering from stomach problems. A few, weeks, a few weeks later, the two finally had a chance to catch up, and it was during this meeting that Frank revealed a terrible secret to his son. He had come home early from work one day after getting sick and actually walked in on Marie having sex with her boss in their bedroom. Marie refused to acknowledge or even talk about the incident. So she, uh, even when she's caught red-handed in a lie or deceit, she just, if you ignore it, it goes away, according to Marie.
1: Frank. There's many, many warning signs right here for Frank. He needs to... uh, Poor Frank. I know this isn't going to end well for him. Continue.
0: (laughs) Unfortunately, it won't. Frank and Mike agreed to meet up the next weekend and talk some more, but unfortunately, that would never happen. The next week, Marie called again to let Mike know that Frank was not feeling well, and over the next few weeks, Frank's condition only seemed to worsen. He began vomiting, experiencing chills, a fever, diarrhea, and tenderness in his stomach. His doctors didn't seem to be alarmed by any of these symptoms and kept prescribing him medicine related to the stomach flu. Now, soon after, Marie called Mike to let him know that she had taken Frank to the hospital after discovering him wandering around outside in his underwear in a very confused state, unable to recognize her or his surroundings. Mike and Terry immediately hopped into their car and drove straight to the hospital. Frank was in isolation and his condition was only getting worse, but doctors finally had a diagnosis. Frank was suffering from infectious hepatitis. By the time this was discovered, though, it was too late. Frank Healy died on May 25, 1975, at the age of 45, surrounded by his family. Now, Frank's death left more questions than answers. His family and doctors alike were left confused on how not only did he die from hepatitis, which doctors said was almost unheard of in that day and age, but how did he catch it in the first place? The water at his place of work was tested, but no trace of the disease came up. An autopsy was performed on Frank with Marie's permission, and they found swelling of the kidneys and lungs along with inflammation of the stomach. All symptoms that closely resembled hepatitis, and it was officially ruled his cause of death. Now the day after Frank died, Mike's wife Terry fell ill at Marie's house. Terry chalked it up to morning sickness, and Marie offered to help help by making her a bowl of soup. Not even an hour after eating the soup, Terry's sickness grew worse. She began to vomit and experience abdominal cramps and was quickly driven to the hospital. Doctors feared that she may have caught hepatitis from Frank. Doctors were going to give Terry a shot, but asked her to check with her gynecologist first because she was pregnant to make sure it was safe for the baby. Marie offered to make the call for her, and good news. Marie said the doctors gave them the go-ahead to get the shot. Except... Upon returning to her doctor, he mentioned that he had actually told Marie not for Terry to get the shot. and Terry just chalked it up to a misunderstanding, you know, a miscommunication. Why would her mother-in-law intentionally lie? And was eventually released back to Marie's house after her condition seemed to improve. But... It wasn't long after returning to the Healy house that Terry fell sick once again and began to hemorrhage, eventually suffering a miscarriage and losing the baby. Terry's health only continued to worsen and eventually she began to suffer violent nausea and extreme abdominal cramps to the point she was unable to walk and had to be carried to an ambulance. In total, Terry Healy ended up in the hospital four times while living at Marie's before her and Mike eventually moved out. There's your son.
1: I, I always look at these poisoning cases, and I know it's like they think everybody's always like, oh, it couldn't be poisoning and everything. And I guess you would think uh, I would know. But I guess that people really don't because it's like this on almost every case. Well, it, I.
0: It, I don't think it's it's definitely so much like I'm sure that thought crosses their head, but it's the thought of like this is your wife, your mother-in-law, your mother. Like you know, I wouldn't think like they're intentionally poisoning you. It's that one of those situations where it's like that's too hard of an idea to even believe that someone that is supposed to love and care for you is the person that's actually trying to kill you, and we'll soon learn that that was a fear that a lot of them had. But again, they were like, it, that can't be true, and we'll see uh, it was true.
1: Well, everybody listening to this, if you start getting sick after visiting your in-laws, uh, think about it. That's all I say. Just think about it.
0: It doesn't hurt to bring it up to the doctor if it happens more
1: than once. Yeah, and bring it up to the doctor because there's always like, even even recently, like when you see poisoning cases, cases the doctor's... We'll find something that fits the symptoms, which is a lot of times not really what's going on. And so if you kind of have that suspicion, bring it up and at least get tested.
0: Yeah, it doesn't hurt. Life. Now, Frank Healy died on a Sunday, was buried on Tuesday, and by Thursday, Marie cashed in his life insurance, which was about $31,000. Marie wasted no time spending it. On both herself and others, she bought Carol a brand new 1976 Honda immediately after she was old enough to drive, Mike and Terry a washing machine for their first apartment, she took her own mother on shopping trips, as well as getting jewelry and expensive clothing for Frank's mother, Carrie. It was around this time that Marie began calling the police. A lot. She would complain about strange phone calls at all hours of the day, as well as kitchen drawers being opened and items missing from her home. She eventually began complaining about smelling gas and even called about several fires that had broken out in her house. Although all of them were minor and seemed to be set in a way they wouldn't cause much major damage. Around this time, Marie's neighbor Doris also began calling police about strange phone calls and a mysterious fire that broke out in her house. Police attempted to put a tap on Marie's phone But every time they would, the calls would mysteriously stop. They were, however, able to get a tap on Doris's phone and trace the calls back to Marie's place of work. However, she continued to deny any knowledge of the calls. So there it is again. Even when confronted with cold hard evidence, she's just like, that wasn't me. And they didn't have much evidence to actually hold on her definitively. So they just let her go. Soon after Frank's death, Lucille was diagnosed with breast cancer. So Mike and Terry moved in with Marie, Carol and Lucille in order to help take care of her. But it didn't take long before Mike and Terry were fed up with Marie and began looking for an apartment close by. Now, Marie did not take this well at all. And it wasn't long after that they told her there, it wasn't long after they told her they were moving out that a mysterious fire destroyed a good portion of the house, forcing Mike to take in Marie, Carol and Lucille. A cause was never clearly established as to what caused the fire, But after a few months, the house was repaired and ready to go. But right before Marie was set to move back into the house, a mysterious fire broke out in the apartment next door to Mike and Terry's, causing smoke damage to the entire building and forcing Mike and Terry to move back into the house with Marie. Eventually, Mike was able to find another apartment and move his family out, finally free from his overbearing mother, or so he thought. So... You know, that's another big red flag there, too. One fire I can get, all right. maybe that is just bad luck, but then two fires in the span of a couple months. That's um, either she's doing it or the family's cursed. So Marie began acting as a nurse for her mother, which included giving her injections, as she called them, which she said were permitted by Lucille's doctor. Lucille's condition did not improve, and she sadly passed away in January of 1977. By spring of 1977, Mike and Terry were planning to leave Alabama for good and move down to Pompano Beach, Florida. Well, it didn't take long for Marie to follow. In the summer of 1978, Marie confided in her son that she had left her job as a secretary at a law firm because her boss attempted to have sex with her in his office. And, of course, a later investigation would prove that to be total bullshit. Marie told Mike that she she was ready for a fresh start And so the day after Carol graduated high school, they decided to move down to Pompano Beach, Florida. Of course, they had to stay with Mike and Terry while they got settled. So it's literally just like that meme from uh, American Horror Story where uh, Emma Roberts is like, surprise, bitch. I bet you thought you'd seen the last of me because she uh, is making it a point that she does not want him to go. It didn't take long for things to start spiraling again. By this point, Mike and Terry had another child. This one was born perfectly healthy, and Marie would often help around the house to give Terry a break from motherhood, such as cleaning and making soups. Terry eventually began to feel ill again, and doctors told her just to get some rest. By this point, Frank's life insurance money had long ran out, and Marie was unemployed and was getting in over her head with debt. So she asked her son if he could lend her some money, and she would, of course, pay him back. He agreed, but that didn't seem to be enough for Marie, because she also stole a spare credit card the couple had stashed in the kitchen.
1: Mom of the year. Yeah, you're about to see how
0: much of a mom of the year she is. Marie was getting desperate for money, and so decided to move back home to Anniston, Alabama with Carol. And not long after that, she took out a life insurance policy on herself for 25000 and one on Carol for 14000 She then took out another life insurance policy covering both of her children, Combined, Kara was covered for almost forty thousand dollars worth of life insurance. Marie next tried to take out another loan, but the loan officer turned her down since she owed over four grand on previous loans she still hadn't paid. And so now it seems like Marie's charms are starting to wear off a little bit. You know, and I don't, men- I didn't mention this before, but when her youth, she was beautiful. She was con- considered one of the most beautiful girls in town, and in high school, she was actually mo- voted most beautiful and like her senior superlative, And she always had a way of charming her way out of stuff or into stuff or to get what she wanted. You know, it's a common theme since she was a kid with her parents. But she's getting older, and people are starting to become wise to these little shit schemes of hers. Back in Alabama, Marie and Carol moved in with Frida, and remember Frida is Frank's sister, and her daughter Lisa. And it didn't take long for strange activity to start up there. Several fires erupted throughout the house, along with telephone wires being cut, and one really, really bizarre and disturbing detail. So, Marie refused to sleep in a bed and instead she slept on the couch. And one day, Frida's mother was cleaning and she discovered a crowbar under one of the pillow cushions. She showed it to Carol, and the two agreed to just move it back to where it was. However, the following night, it was right back under the couch cushion, and Marie refused to acknowledge the strange activity. And so life just went on like normal.
1: Well, that is the one thing I could understand out of this. If she's sleeping on the couch, I've got a baseball bat underneath my bed. So along with a gun, but I got a baseball bat underneath the bed too, just in case. So
0: I mean, fair. That is true. I mean, you can never be too sure, but also that on top of everything and the strange fires that seem to follow him with the crowbar, that would be a little,
1: oh, the rest of the stuff I would be on. <laughs> but, like I said, you know, that's because I'm wary. That's because I'm watching. And that's what I'm saying. These <laughs> other people need to be watching. Marie's taking care of herself.
0: Oh, yeah. She's taking, She's care, taking of herself, care of herself.
1: Right. So, you know, everybody else needs to be watching. And it just gets worse. It, it's going to get wild here in a second.
0: By spring of 1979, Carol began feeling ill. Marie would soon begin telling relatives and friends that Carol had leukemia and had several of them donate thousands of dollars to help cover her medical bills. As a way to cheer Carol up, Marie agreed to buy her daughter her dream car. So one morning, Marie made Carol breakfast, and then they were on their way to the dealership to pick up the car. However, not long into the car ride, Carol began to get violently ill to the point where her arms actually stopped working. So instead of going to pick up a car, they went to the hospital. This actually happened one more time just a few days later when Carol became too sick to even sit up while on the way to the car dealership. Now, it was around this time that Mike Healy actually became fed up with his mother's constant spending as he was now being hounded by debt collectors looking for payment for purchases made by his mother. Mike flew back to Alabama and made his mother go to the bank with him to settle all her loans. Marie agreed, but first she made Mike breakfast. And after they ate breakfast on the car right there, He began to get extremely ill and eventually had to go back to Florida before he could make it to the bank. Carol's health continued to decline and despite multiple visits to the doctors and having her stomach pumped even, they could not find anything wrong with her. The sickness seemed to happen in spells. After a while, the sickness would go away. Carol would begin to feel better, but then almost immediately fall sick again. Carol began to fall into a deep depression and pretty soon doctors actually began to wonder if maybe this was more of a psychological problem than a physical one and suggested that she go see a psychiatrist. But of course she refused because she said, I know I'm not crazy. This is happening to me. Carol's symptoms only continued to get worse and eventually Marie began giving her injections. Which she said she was given permission to do so by Carol's doctor. Pretty soon after this, Carol began to lose control of her arms, legs, and pretty soon struggled even to walk up the stairs. Carol had had enough and attempted to commit suicide by swallowing a handful of Tylenol, but thankfully the attempt was unsuccessful. Eventually, during Carol's frequent doctor visits, you know they were still unable to figure out what was wrong with her. You know they checked for everything, every type of disease. And then eventually one of them suggested that maybe she was suffering from heavy metal poisoning. But before they could do any tests, Marie immediately withdrew her from the hospital and took her home. But it was around this time that Marie was about to find out that her luck had ran out because she was soon arrested due to writing several phony checks to a furniture company. News of Marie's arrest quickly spread through town. Although Marie waved it off as, eh, you know, it was just a misunderstanding. But the arrest didn't sit right with Carrie or Frida Healy. And remember, that's Frank's mother and Frank's sister. They began to grow suspicious and soon phoned Mike to not only tell him of his mother's arrest, but also to inquire about the injections Marie had not only given Carol, but Lucille and Frank. Mike knew nothing about any sort of injections and quickly phoned Carol in the hospital. He asked her if their mother had given her injections, and at first she said no because Marie was in the room with her. But after some prying from Mike, she eventually admitted the truth. Now, after Marie's arrest, her world seemed to be crumbling around her as she scrambled around town to get more money, mainly in order to pay the premium in order to keep the life insurance policy on her children. As more and more banks turned her away and the life insurance was about to expire, her injections to Carol seemed to get more frequent. Mike called the medical center in Aniston and voiced his concern about the supposed injections, something they assured Marie was not allowed to do. This tip allowed doctors to look at Carol's illness from a different angle, and it didn't take long for one of them to notice Carol's fingernails, which had these distinctive white lines across them. And that, they realized, is a clear sign of arsenic poisoning. Tests were quickly ran on Carol's hair, and eventually the test results came back, Carol had over a hundred times the normal level of arsenic in her system. And now, of course, arsenic's naturally occurring. It's like in the air and the dirt and stuff. So, low levels is perfectly normal, but she was obviously being dosed up with it. Carol immediately began treatment for the poisoning and thankfully survived her ordeal. After telling Mike about her new diagnosis, he knew once and for all the answer to the question that had been nagging at him. His mother attempted to kill his sister. He typed up a letter to the coroner's office laying out his evidence and reasoning as to why he believed his mother was also responsible for the death of his father, Frank Healy, and that his body needed to be exhumed. The same day Carol's lab test came back positive for arsenic poisoning, Frank Healy's body was exhumed and tested where it was discovered he also had over a hundred times the normal amount of arsenic in his system. So, on October 9th, 1979, Marie was arrested for the murder of her husband and the attempted murder of her daughter. As the news spread about the shocking revelation that Frank was murdered, other deaths related to the family began to be questioned. The first being Marie's own mother, Lucille. Lucille was exhumed and tested where it was found that she, too, had high levels of arsenic in her system. Now, her official cause of death was still from the cancer. However, it was noted the large doses of arsenic she was being fed probably accelerated her condition and made it a lot worse. You would think
1: probably that would be the case.
0: Probably, but you know... The next day, the next death was that of Sonia Gibson. Remember, she was Carol's friend from when she was younger, that just seemed to get sick out of nowhere. So they exhumed her body and tested it. However, it was actually found that she had normal levels of arsenic in her system and that her death was unrelated. So, a very sad, tragic death. Um, but thankfully, we had closure for that. Now, Marie. Many more stories began to emerge of people being plagued with strange illnesses soon after eating something at the Healy house. From family members to neighborhood kids to even two police officers dispatched to her house on one of those bullshit phone calls. So it's not like she was just, she was poisoning, you know, Frank and her family for their insurance money, but she was just doing it for the hell of it to anyone that came to the house. Just for funsies. Just for funsies. And hell, she might have been doing it to herself. That's why she's so batshit crazy. Now, Frieda Healy became determined to prove once and for all that Marie was responsible for the wave of sickness that plagued their entire family because her mother was actually diagnosed with cancer just a few months before Marie's arrest. And so, you know, she was convinced that Marie was probably poisoning them as well. She ransacked Marie's home until she found a pill bottle in the attic and took it to the police who tested it and confirmed that it contained arsenic. Not long after this, Frida and Frank's mother, Carrie, also passed away from cancer. While her body was tested, it was also found to contain high levels of arsenic, like Lucille, which probably streamlined her cancer. Marie remained in jail awaiting trial for a month before she made bail and was released. So this woman is connected, confirmed to murder one directly, attempted to murder her daughter, indirectly murdered two more, and, you know, know, let her out on bail. After being released, she drove to a neighboring town where she rented a motel room under a phony name, and the next day, her lawyer discovered Marie was missing and a note on the bed that stated Marie had been kidnapped. Really? So, like I said, plot twist, you know. Marie was now a wanted fugitive. Marie traveled down to Florida, where she took the name Robbie Hannon, and soon met a man at a bar named John Greenleaf Honan Third. The two quickly got married on May 29, 1981, and moved to New Hampshire. Their love was short-lived, however, as in the summer of 1982, Robbie came to John with some tragic news. She was suffering from a rare blood disorder and needed to return home to Texas in order to get treatment for a few months. After three months of not hearing anything, John finally received a call, and it was from Terry Martin, Robbie's twin sister. She told John that, sadly, Robbie had passed away, but there was no need for him to come down to Texas because her body was donated to science for research.
1: At least she'd done something good with that.
0: Mm -hmm. And uh, Terry went on to explain that one of her sister's dying wishes was for Terry to meet her husband, John. So the two agreed, and Terry traveled from Texas to go live with John for a while. Of course, in case you didn't figure it out, Robbie and Terry are the same person. And Audrey was able and Marie was able to actually fool John by losing weight and changing her hair color. Pretty soon, Terry got a secretary job nearby and began to settle down. But police were already getting suspicious when none of the places in Robbie's obituary turned out to be real. And uh, this led them to Terry Martin, who they obviously knew was actually Robbie. But of course, what they didn't know at the time was that Terry was actually Robbie, who was actually Marie. This leads us back to where we started the story. Terry has just been brought in for questioning and admitted that her real name is Audrey Marie Healy and that she is wanted for murder. She was quickly extradited back to Alabama and sentenced to life in prison for the murder of her husband, Frank, and 20 extra years for the attempted murder of Carol. So, of course, that's the end, right? Marie's in jail for life. What more could they be? Except that is not the end of this story. Marie quickly... I'm sorry, Marie quickly used her former secretary skills to get in good with the guards and began doing paperwork at the medium security prison where she was being held. She eventually befriended the head warden, telling him all about how she was framed for her husband's death, and they falsely accused her of attempting to murder her own daughter. The warden seemed sympathetic to the quiet, soft-spoken woman, and on February nineteenth, 1987, he granted her a three-day furlough release from prison, unsupervised, and this was after already granting her four eight-hour releases in the months prior, and though she went and came back as normal, so I guess they figured they could trust her for a whole-ass weekend unsupervised. I know they do that now still, but, you know, normally there's, like, normally it's for, like, death in the families and funerals and stuff like that, but at least there's usually a guard, you know, with them. Even murderers? Even murderers. Like... So those skills Marie had of charming people, she obviously still had a little juice left in them. So Marie was picked up by her husband, John Honan, who'd actually moved to be closer to his wife. So here's another thing. This is true love. He not only found out that his wife had faked her death to get away from him and then posed as her own twin sister to get back with him. She was also using a fake name and her real name, was Marie Healy, and she was actually wanted for attempting to murder her whole other family before him, but did he divorce her when she went to jail for life? He did not. He stayed married to her. He moved to Alabama to be closer with her, and he even picked her up from her release. That is true love. I can change her. Or, you know, you can change her. if that situation where it's like, well, at least I know she's not going anywhere, but little does he know she's going somewhere. Marie was picked up by her husband, and So Marie was picked up by her husband and the couple spent three days together in a motel room. On the morning, she was set to return to prison. Marie told John that she wanted to go visit her mom's grave by herself and promised she'd be right back. Of course, she didn't come back. She did, however, leave behind a note asking John for his forgiveness and saying that she was planning to hide in Canada. However, this time Marie would not be missing for long. Just four days after her escape, a local woman in Anniston, Alabama, came home to discover a woman collapsed on her neighbor's porch attempting to break in. The woman was completely drenched in water and drifting in and out of consciousness. The neighbor quickly called the police, who who sent an ambulance to pick up the stranger. The stranger was, of course, Marie Healy, and she had spent four days exposed in the wilderness during intense rainstorms and temperatures that dropped below freezing. She was suffering from fatal hypothermia and suffered a heart attack on the way to the hospital and died at the age of 53.
1: She put all her points in charisma. She put a, should have put a, a few of her points in survival.
0: Yeah, because they said like it literally like her knees were scuffed up and her hands, so it literally looked like she had been crawling around in the woods for four days. And it was another interesting thing. So they think the woman who's door she was actually trying to break into was actually a former classmate of Marie's. And so they think that she intentionally went there to try to smooth talk her way into getting into the woman's house. So she was trying up until the very end, because even when they were even as she was dying, drifting in and out of consciousness and they were asking, you know, who are you and all this, she kept saying stuff like, Oh, you know, my car just broke down a few miles up and I'm just trying to find a phone to get a call. So she She was true to herself to the very end. A liar. Now, a few days after Marie Healy died without ever accepting responsibility for what she had done, she was laid to rest. Her funeral was attended by her husband, John, as well as her daughter, Carol, and preaching and overseeing the whole thing was her son, Reverend Michael Healy. Now, Marie was buried in the spot that was reserved for her for decades, right next to Frank Healy, the man that she murdered. And that is the end of Audrey Marie Healy, aka Robbie Honan, aka Terry Martin. So, as you can see, this was a woman who uh, was just a cold-blooded psychopath that cared more about money than her own family. And the thing is, is she—it wasn't like they were, you know, destitute. She was, she had it good with Frank and their home and their jobs. Like, if she could just kept it, she would have eventually been able to. Afford the finer things in life without having to resort to murder.
1: It's almost like the money wasn't the thing because she was just poisoning random people. It was like she just enjoyed poisoning and causing this harm to people. It's just.
0: Well, and that's the thing too is like um, in the book I read uh, based off this case, which I'll post that in the show link. It does kind of seem like she just, she was obviously very mentally ill, but she did have a sort of self-destructive behavior about her because even though she had several like good paying jobs at like law firms, she would always find some way to get fired. And it was always someone else's fault. And she would always just intentionally seem to do these things that like would sabotage herself. She was her own inner saboteur. And It's just a very interesting case on a woman who died at the...
1: was a liar till the very end.
0: She sabotaged
1: everyone around her, including herself, I guess.
0: Oh, yeah, and she was not remorseful about it at all. Like I said, up until the very end, she claimed that she had nothing to do with it and that they were framing her and that she was just this poor, innocent woman. And even though there's evidence to suggest that we know you did it so that is um audrey marie healy what do you think
1: i think again if you start feeling sick after you visit your in-laws go ahead and assume the worst like if it happens multiple times uh poisoning is one of those things it's easier to do than you would think you know you can you can slip poison and you know used to it was arsenic and of course that's much harder to get now but there's so many like drugs and everything out there you can poison somebody and it the symptoms are usually stomach problems and everything like that which is like a common thing so when you go to the doctor and you're like hey my stomach hurts that could be anything you know if you you need to kind of like give more information like you know you're like this happens multiple times especially when i'm visiting this one person or after I, you eat there or after you eat there i know you know it's kind of like you don't want to assume the worst but you know be smart and sometimes assume the worst at least if you go and get tested all you're doing is confirming that they are not doing it to you If you find out, you may be saving your life, but, you know, it it never hurts to assume the worst sometimes. Protect yourself.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like they always say, you got to put the mask on yourself first before you put it on someone else if the plane's going down. And um, that's the thing, too, is like it wasn't just like she poisoned them a couple of times. She was poisoning these people over years to the point where it just started shutting their body down bit by bit. And it took a long time for Carol to get back to normal. She is thankfully back to normal. She's living a very happy, healthy life. But just the damage that caused, it shuts down your central nervous system, your bone or your muscles start to atrophy, and you're literally like rotting from the inside out.
1: She was in so much pain, she decided to kill herself. She just failed at killing herself because her mom was trying to kill her.
0: And that's what makes this, I think, even worse was the fact that her mom was killing her in such a slow, painful way. And she saw how much pain that her daughter was in. She didn't give two shits. And so, uh, but uh, I think karma got her in the end because hypothermia is a pretty painful way to go.
1: I hope those last three days in the wilderness was quite uncomfortable for her.
0: Uh, According to the coroner, they actually were. Her skin was blotchy red, purple, And so she uh, she went out. I'm not saying if you believe in karma, but if you believe in karma, I think she uh, worked her magic with this woman. So that is the end of this episode. We hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, If you do enjoy it, please leave us a review or like us on Spotify or Apple podcast or wherever it is you're listening to this to. It helps us out a lot. And we appreciate hearing feedback from you guys. You can also follow us on Instagram at Beers with Queers Pod, P-O-D, or you can follow us on Facebook at Beers with Queers, a true crime podcast. There we post photos and evidence from each of the cases we do. So again, if you're a visual learner more than an auditory learner, go give us a like, check us out. And if you have any case suggestions or you just want to reach out and talk to us, we'd love to hear from you guys. So... Go check us out. We hope you have a wonderful 2023.
1: See you soon. See ya.